If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to be reading from Psalm 62. It should be up on the screen. And again, this is in the midst of a series that we're going through on rest. How do we truly rest? And this is such appropriate time of the year because in January, it's a time we make all these resolutions, a time that we redouble our efforts, a time that we exhaust ourselves because we're trying to maybe lose the holiday weight. We're trying to get rid of old habits that die hard, but it's a time really for us to rest. Let's read Psalm 62. Listen to the word of God. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you attack a man or batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. And those of high estate are delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hope on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to the Lord, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. The word of God. You may be seated. Well, I've titled today's sermon, Chillax. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's something we use around our house. It's a, it's a cultural term. Uh, um, that means it's a combination of chill and relax. And we use it around our house, and we have kind of some unspoken rules that we say about this, is that you can't use it um, unless you're at peace. So when you tell someone to chillax, you have to be relaxed in yourself. But you're looking at someone else that needs to be calm. And so you tell them with a bit of levity while communicating, being calm, to chillax. And if you really need them, if they really need to relax, you, in our household, you can say super chillax. And so that is kind of like the double dog dare to say, just, you can calm down. That's going to be okay. And so, um, I even wanted to add one thing to it. I'm going to start saying chillax, which is a bit of chill, relax, and shalom. It's a little, little bit Hebrew in there, um, to tell you to be at peace. But I really believe that is, that is one of the messages of this psalm, is be at peace. And we see here, David wrote the psalm. We don't know the conditions of which he wrote it. We don't know if um, uh, Saul is sending out henchmen to come after him. We don't know if Absalom's rebelling. We don't know that. This really is a psalm that's not a prayer. It's just he's talking. 
He's telling about his state. And it's divided into two sections. If you look at section verses 1 through 7, he's really talking to his soul. And so he's, he's saying, he's describing his soul that it's at rest in God. And the verses 8 through the rest of the chapter, 8 through 12, he's talking to people, others. So you see this nice balance of speaking to his own heart and then speaking to the hearts of others. Um, a couple of things I want you to really see is really when you get down to it and you study this passage, this psalm, it, he's talking about how to have peace and resilience to be a hearty Christian. And what I mean by that is that amidst persecution, amidst people, and we can even see that in verses three and four, that uh, how long will you attack a man, a battering, uh, battering him like a leaning wall, a tottering front, fence? That's this Hebrew term for, we have a euphemism today that says you kick a man when he's down. And that's what's happening here. And so he's saying you're kicking a man while he's down in verse 4. That you take pleasure in falsehood. You bless him with your mouth, but inwardly you curse. So you speak behind their back. This is a picture of betrayal. So that's, those are very hurtful things. That already, think about times that you have been weak And if someone came and injured you while you were weak, or you found out that what they were saying to your face was quite the opposite of what they say behind your back. But how do you be resilient? How do you persevere through this? How do you go through this type of pain? How are you unshaken? So that is a bit of what I want to talk about. So I looked looked at this passage, and I want to talk about this idea of resilience. And then I want to talk about not what resilience is, but I want to talk about how do you get resilience. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is some application for you and myself. So this is this idea of a person at peace. Uh, we, we get a picture of that in the New Testament when Stephen is preaching to Jews. And he's saying things that they don't like, but he's saying the truth. And they pick up stones and they start hurling stones at him to kill him. It says he had the face of an angel and he looked to heaven. He had perfect peace amidst being stoned. How do we have that? That's interesting. It says in verse one, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Now, the interesting that that word wait in Hebrew means something. Now, sometimes I don't know if many of y'all have pets, but sometimes we'll have pets that will wait for food and they'll be silent right before us. Or you tell them to do something, give them a command now, it's not this wait in silence. It's not like a cat that's sitting there just sitting there. Because cats, I really don't like cats. They, they, you give them a command and they roll their eyes at you. Um, but it's not even, so a step above that is a dog who eagerly wants to, he wants to a, a, obey you or she wants to obey you. And they're wagging their tail there. That's not even the idea of waiting in silence here. This idea in Hebrew is literally wide open mouth gazing, speechless, dumbfounded. That's this idea of waiting in silence. I don't know if if any of y'all saw the movie um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. If you have young kids, you probably have. Um, But in this one scene where this, uh, the, the main character creates this machine that when water comes in, it out comes food. Um, and it's on the upper stratosphere. So whenever, uh, a storm cloud comes, it rains, whatever food he's remotely sent to it. And so when they first start happening, 
uh, and, and cheeseburgers started dropping, everybody's mouth was open gazed. And it's this whole scene where one by one, each of them turn and they're amazed by what's, what they're seeing. Well, that's the bit of the picture we're seeing here is that David is waiting before God dumbfounded. He's silent. He has nothing to say. And we see that other times in the Bible. Isaiah, when he sees the temple, is, is filled with God's glory. He is quiet. Moses at the burning bush. These are all examples of, of people before God. And they see God, a glimpse of who he is, and they're dumbfounded. And when you see God for who he is, you, you have peace. You wait in silence. Um. What we see here, too, he says over and over, he repeats, I trust in him. Now, I I want to speak a little bit about the idea of trust. Um, Trust is this idea of just reliance. I mean, all of you right now are trusting the seats that you're sitting in are going to hold you up, that they're not going to fall down, or that there was no gum in the seat, or that the seats are relatively clean. You're trusting all that, or else you wouldn't be sitting in them, right? So you have a, a faith a certain, a low amount of faith, but you have faith in those, those chairs. So your object of your faith is the chair, but you, you're trusting. That's exactly what he's doing here. Um, and if you, if you really look at the themes of the Bible, the Bible divides people into the world into two types of people. Um, and, and I love whenever you start to see themes in the Bible where they, they, it, it can divide people. And it doesn't divide people into those that trust in God and those that don't have faith, it doesn't divide that. It divides those that, that trust in the one true God and those that trust in any other God. Okay? So there's a division here um, that those that trust in one true God and those tr- that trust in many false gods. There, there was a uh, Jewish uh, psychoanalyst, his name was Viktor Frankl. Um, and he lived uh, in the 20th century, and he actually went to Auschwitz. Uh, he was interned there in the concentration camp during World War II. And like a good doctor, he observed personalities that were going on. And he, he divided people into four categories whenever he saw what was going on. He noticed that people became one of these four things. They either had this, what he calls the death stare, and they just wasted away. Once they got there, they lost all hope, and that within days, they died. Secondly, the second type of people became very cruel. They lived, but they became very harsh towards others. They became very protective. They were mean to their fellow prisoners. The third, had, uh, the third type had hope, but they had vain hope, is what he would say. And specifically, uh, he, he comments on this one prisoner who, who said... Towards the end of them being in the concentration camp, he woke up one day and he, he told Victor that he had a dream that the war was going to end by March 30th. Now, if you know a little bit about history, or two in Europe didn't end till May, 1st of May. Uh, but he believed it was going to end and they would be liberated by March 30th. And so that as the time approached, that particular prisoner started to realize that his dream was not going to happen. And by March 29th, he, felt he had a high fever. By March 30th, he was comatose. And by the 31st, he was dead. And he pointed out that he had a vain hope. And the fourth category that, of people that he noticed is that they had a living hope, is what he called it. He literally called it that. 
is a living hope that they hoped in something that could not be stamped out. It was ongoing. It was not a dead hope. And he would tell prisoners to look, remind yourself that there's people in heaven looking down at you. And you must move on through this. You must get through this for, because they're looking at you. And that is what we have truly in Christianity. In Christ, we have a living hope. We have the true truth. Is, is the way God has made it. And over and over in the scriptures, God talks about this. I want to read you a little um, part of a poem by Rudyard Kipling. He was a, a British poet. He was born, I believe, in the 1860s and um, lived till the 1930s. And so he was born in India. And so he wrote uh, the, the Jungle Book and some other stories, children's stories you may know of. But he wrote a poem called If. And you've probably heard this quoted several times in, in movies, especially movies about war. But he says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it about you, blaming it on you. And he keeps going on, if you can do this, if you can do this. He says, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to be broken, but you can stoop and build them up, build them up again. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue and walk with kings nor lose the common touch, he goes on and says, then yours is the earth and everything in it, and you'll be a man, my son. Now, it's interesting. He talks about lots of great virtues here. He talks about uh, having resilience, humbleness, patience, courage, truth, discretion, being perseverant, all the things I'm talking about right now. But it's interesting if you look, if you really look in that poem, the second line of the poem talks about where you get that strength. It's the motive. He says, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but may make allowance for their doubting. And any commentator on this poem will tell you this is in Kipling grew up in a, uh, a climate of humanism and, and that, that espoused Christian virtue, but the motive was to trust in yourself. And we really, we're feeling the echoes of that kind of art to us. But Kipling's saying, be resilient, but trust in yourself. And that's not the kind of trust David's talking about here. His, the object of his trust is trust in God, not in yourself. Or else it will be a vain hope. Now, I want you to focus on the last two verses here in this passage. Because this is really how he trusts in God. It says, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. That power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. So there's really three things, three attributes I want you to see that come out. So if you trust in God, you have to know who's the God you trust in. And the first thing we see is that he's powerful. Secondly, that he's loving. And third, that he is wrathful. Now, I, I want to just expand upon those three attributes in, in some of the time that we have here. But if you believe in these attributes that God really is truly powerful, all powerful, all loving, and all just then you can rest. 
And I'll, I'll tell you how. Um, so if God is powerful, which is infinite, his power is not acquired. He's not dependent upon any higher authority. There is no more supreme court, no boss of God. He is the big boss. He is the, the big cheese. You've heard those expressions, but it, it points to his power. There's no one else he appeals to. He's over all creation. Um, if God had, this one guy named Stephen Charnick said, without power, God's promises are empty. His mercy is feeble pity and his threats are mere scarecrow. So God has to be powerful to be God. His power is not checked or it's not frustrated by any creation. How many of you, just to show of hands, got frustrated this week at work or school? Okay. All right. Just a few of you. Um, we experience frustration because we have blocked goals. There's something we want to do and we can't do it. It was three o'clock on Friday. I was doing a final walkthrough with a project that ta- has taken five months. And I'm walking through with the project manager. And he goes through and says, this caulk line is not, th- this line on the floor is not caulked. And again, it's, I'm in downtown Matthews. I've got a date with my wife at five o'clock and I've got to go buy caulk at the hardware store and get in here and caulk this line. I was extremely frustrated. I don't want to tell you the words I'm saying under my breath as I'm caulking this, this joint here. Um, I was so frustrated because I had goals and I was blocked, but God never experienced frustration. It's incredible, but he has the power. I want to give you a, a bit of a, a perspective on that. Um, nuclear bombs are, are, are they're registered in tons of TNT. So if you took a, a, a big stack of dynamite and put it here and it was a ton, uh, a nuclear bomb's power is registered in how many tons of that? And now, you know, the first bomb on Hiroshima or Nagasaki was registered in kilotons or how many thousands of tons it was. Now bombs are registered in megatons. How many millions of tons that is? Well, the largest bomb that was ever detonated was in 1961 by the Russians, and it was called the the Tsar bomb. It was was a hydrogen bomb, and it was 50 to 58 megatons. Okay? To give you an idea, that would be the equivalent of if you stacked up dynamite as high as the Eiffel Tower and as deep as the Eiffel Tower laying down both ways, a giant cube of dynamite. That's how, how, much power, how much power it is. When they exploded it on the Arctic Circle, the fireball alone was five miles in diameter. Okay? That's, that's uh, from here to the church property and back. That's five miles. Over, it's a little less than five miles. Just the fireball. The mushroom went 59 miles high. That's above the stratosphere. To give you an idea... Planes fly at about 30,000 feet. That's about six miles. This was 59 miles high that the mushroom cloud went. The blast radius was 34 miles. So if you just took a pin and put it right here in the Indian Trail and drew a circle around for 34 miles, that would go up to Concord, uh, that would go to Huntersville, that would go to uh, Bessemer City, not Bessemer City, I'm sorry, Mount Holly, go down beyond Rock Hill and over towards Albemarle. That was the blast radius. Everything within that turned to glass. You could get a sunburn, a third degree sunburn at 62 miles. Windows broke out at 560 miles. That's above Philadelphia. 
that windows were breaking out. And it registered 8.1 on the Richter scale. On a scale of 1 to 10. Huge. But let me give you a little comparison. It would take 1.8 billion of those bombs exploding every second to be the equivalent power of the sun. Let me say that again. 1.8 billion of those czar bombs exploding every second to be the equivalent of the power of one second of sunlight. Okay. And God created the sun. And the sun, by all comparison, the rest of the universe is a small star. You compare it to Betelgeuse or some others, it is pale. So when God looks at the czar bomb, it's like, it's like snapping pops to him. It is nothing to him. He is that powerful. And I want to give you a bit of perspective of his power. He created the sun. And this is a bit of what God said to Job. Whenever Job had experienced incredible trauma, he came to God and God started going down his creation. And saying, if I created these things, how much more powerful am I? That's exactly a bit of a glimpse of his power. God is powerful. And that's what David sees. He sees pretty perfectly that God is powerful. Secondly, he sees that God is love. So let me back up for a second. If God is all powerful, then you can rest. In middle school, I would go to school and there would be certain guys that would, that would, uh, bullies that would pick on me. But I had an ace in the hole. I had three older brothers. One of which, who was 14 months older than me and was an incredible fighter. So if anybody ever picked on me when I was younger, I, I could just choose which, which one of the billy goats are going after him. And so I could rest walking down the hall that I'm not going to get picked on or I wouldn't be for long. So I, with, with the power of God, you can rest that he is in control. Secondly, he saw the love of God. All right. He said his steadfast love. Um, God's love, just a few attributes of his love. It's one, it's uninfluenced, meaning it's not fickle. God loves who he wants to love. He said, I love Jacob and I hated Esau. And why he does that, I don't know. But he can love who he wants to. It's influenced. His love is, is influenced by his own will. It's eternal. Jeremiah 13, 3 says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I don't know if y'all ever, I know you've seen the movie Braveheart. And in there, William Wallace tells his, his wife, he says, I've loved you. I always have. And sometimes I'll, I'll quote that to my, to my wife. Um, but there's, there's a beauty about that that says, I always have loved you. And for William Wallace, it was just since his childhood. But God says, I've loved you before you were even born. Before you're even an embryo. Before the foundations of the world, I've loved you. That's a very calming, peaceful love. That if you're a believer, that God set his aim on you like Jacob long before you ever came around. God's love is limitless. You know, there's nothing that can stop God loving you. Jacob, Jacob was a scoundrel. He lied, he cheated, he stole, and God still loved him and God still blessed him. It's not fickle. God's love is gracious. John three sixteen. we all know the verse. We see it at every football game with a crazy guy with a wig. That God so loved the world. One commentator, author Pink, said, Christ did not die to make God love us, 
but because God loved us, Christ died. God's love, it means that you can relax. God, he likes you. He loves you. You can relax in that. I don't worry about my wife's love for me when she's around other men because I know she loves me. It's the same thing with God, except his is infinitely more. The last thing that David sees is and, and prays for that causes him to be at peace is God's justice or wrath. You can rest that God's going to make it right. You don't have to take revenge on others that hurt you. And believe me, David had lots of reasons. People were talking behind his back. People are plotting against him. People are kicking him when he's down. He's in a cave hiding for days on end, weeks on end. And, God, and David had lots of reasons, desires to take revenge against Saul. But he didn't. He rested because he knew that God was going to work it out. And I know when, someone, when you're going through some pain and someone says, it'll work out, that that feels like a cheesy cliche. But ultimately, everything will work out. That's what heaven and hell is all about. Most references in the Bible to God's attributes are about his anger, his fury and wrath, more so than his love and tenderness. And I know the wrath of God is an attribute of God that sometimes we want to hide. We, we don't want to talk about. We're a little ashamed of sometimes. Kind of like an, a crazy uncle. But God's not ashamed of his wrath. He puts it out in the forefront. Because believers, it is, it is a blessing that God is wrathful. Someone once said, how could... He, or how could God who delights in that which is pure and lovely, not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity as heaven. God is not an eternal pacifist. He will go after all those that are evil. It's interesting, if you look, David says, For you will render a man according to his work. How can David say that? Because later in Psalm 130, it says, um, it talks about that no man can stand before you if you counted our works against us. David's appropriating now the, the works of Christ. God's own right arm. And, God, and David knew about this. Knew about the Messiah that's coming. He knew the love of God. And so he knew that he wasn't going to God wasn't going to look at his works. He was going to look at the works of God. The works of Christ. And that's how he could stand before God. God is a slow, steady steamroller that's moving on. That one day all things will be righted. Well, I've got about five minutes. And I want to talk a little bit about the application here. What is this? Out? This is David had a peace. He could truly chillax. He could truly have shalom. He could truly rest. He was a resilient believer. Kept getting hit and kept moving on. He was a hearty believer. That is what he was. And why he was is because he understood God's power, love, and justice. So what is the application to us? What does this have to do with us? One, the very first thing I'd say, I've got three things. The first thing is worship. 
Anytime you are fearful, you really need to worship. And that means individually and corporately. And so we have this rhythm that we worship on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And so it's a time for believers to come together. And so it's a bit of a synergy. It's a spiritual synergy, which is that the, the, that together, that we are better than the sum of the parts. And there's something very unique, something um, super spiritual about us coming together as believers and worshiping Christ. And it allows you to take your eyes for a bit off yourself and off what's raging around you, off people not keeping their heads around you. It allows you to look to God. Christ always kept his head about him. You, you look at the disciples that were in the boat with the storm. And they were crying out. And he was telling them to relax. They're with the creator of the storm. <clears throat> so I would, I would commend to you a book by author Pink. It's called The Attributes of God. You may have it. Dust it off your shelf. If you don't have it, I'd, I'd recommend you, you getting it. And just one Every Sunday, just pull out a different attribute and read about it and just take it in that God is this. God is powerful. And it's much more expansive than just these three attributes. So I would say worship by yourself in Christ and then worship as a community. That is one application here for you to have this, I would say, a spiritual force field around you, a faith field around you that David had. Second application is Sabbath. This intentional, intentional rest that we need this pattern every Sunday that there's a rest there. A rest for your body, a rest for your soul. And, and I don't want to get too much specifics, but if you look at Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 is kind of the, the, the quintessential passage on, on uh, Sabbath and literally, Sabbath in, in Hebrew means Sabbat, and it means to cease and desist. They give you a picture of what that means. Uh, a couple, uh, it was last week, I got a call from Mecklenburg uh, County Code official that he drives around and looks at job sites, and if someone doesn't have the proper paperwork, then, uh, then he lowers the boom. And so I get a call on my voicemail that says, call me immediately. And so uh, I call him, and he said, yes, this is so-and-so. He says, if you don't have the proper uh, uh, permits pulled by today, and it was, again, probably 3 o'clock, um, if you don't have the proper permits, I'm going to issue a cease and desist order so that you have to stop everything until you get that, and you have to pay the fines. Whew. Well, I, was, I didn't have to have those. We were just demoing. And I said, well, we're just demoing. We're just doing some remediation. He said, okay, you don't have to worry about it. But that picture, it made me think of that's a picture of what the Sabbath is. It's really cease and desisting of your normal pursuits. See, he would have put a piece of paper on the side of the house that says, you can't have any workers out here. You can't have any hammers. You can't even have a fan blowing out here. You need to relax. Everything needs to come to a standstill. And that is a bit of a picture of the Sabbath is that you need to rest now, before I get into whether you're strict, a moderate, Sabbatarian, uh, Hebrews 4, you just read it because it points to heaven, points to heaven and says Christ is our rest. 
And uh, that even when the Israelites entered it in the promised land, they still weren't at rest unless they were true believers. And so um, the end of it's interesting that Hebrews 4 and verse 12 is a verse that's always quoted about the Bible. That's understanding your intentions of your heart. It says, for the word is of God is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so Sabbath has a lot to do with Christian liberty, which we're going to be talking about in a few weeks. So should you watch the football game? Should you go and eat at a restaurant on Sabbath? Should you go work or enjoy the garden um, on the Sabbath? Should you play sports? Well, go to this verse, verse 12. Let the scriptures discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Is it resting for you? The last application is to take an inventory of your social capital. Take an inventory of your social capital. And what I mean by that is if you look at believers who have gone through incredible trauma and pain, stress, and heartache, that the one thing that they noticed uh, is that they had... a community around them that consisted really of three types of people in their lives. And they all, of course, as a good sermon, it's all going to start with ours, but there's a reciprocal relationship, meaning that there are peers in their life that they share and then they have them share with them that they have input into that person's life and they have input into their life. There's, there's reciprocity. So that's the first type of social relationship you need. The second one is uh, a receiving relationship that where you have an elder or uh, someone in your life, a life group leader that's in your life that can pour into your life. You're, re- you're on the receiving end and that takes great humility for you to have that. But that's the second part of the social type of community you need in your life. And the last type of relationship is relinquishing relationship. And that's a relationship where you're giving You're relinquishing who you are to that person. You're substituting your stories, your ability to share, to listen to them. You're pouring into their life. And a healthy believer that is trusting in God, that has peace, shalom, has these three types of relationships in their life. So that when the storms come and batter against your foundation, that you have the community that helps you grow, helps you go through this storm. And also psychologists, Christian psychologists will call this, when you have this, you can have post-traumatic growth. I don't know if you've ever heard the term, seen the bumper sticker or the t-shirt that says, what doesn't um, kill you will make you stronger. I want to say rip that up. Because that phrase really talks about when you have pain in your life, to, to grow you need to become more independent more self-reliant, which is what Rudyard Kipling was saying, become self-reliant. David here in the psalm was not self-reliant. He was totally reliant upon God, upon, upon the powerful, loving, just Jehovah. If you want to be a resilient Christian, if you want to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, then you must have trust, not in yourself, not in any other thing, not in riches, not in anything else, but you must have trust 
in God of who he really is. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to share. Thank you for this opportunity to um, worship in word. We worshiped in song. We worshiped in confession. Um, We worshiped um, ascribing to you, telling you who you are and who you are to us. God, I pray that this body would do that in increasing measure. That would make us a hearty, um, perseverant, enduring body of believers. That when pain comes our way, we don't fold. We don't become cruel. We don't have a vain hope that things will get better in this life. But we have a living hope in, in you. That if things don't get better... One day they will in heaven, and one day you will make all things right, and that you love us in your eye. If your eye is on the sparrow, your eye is on us, and that you're not like a benevolent but anemic Santa Claus. You are powerful. You are the most powerful force in this universe. Thank you, God, for being my God. In your name, amen.